Holy man, it is a privilege to have our hearts prepared in singing, and now we get to turn our attention in the study of God's Word, and we come to Romans chapters 9 through 11, and this is a deeply rich section of Scripture, so many rich theological themes and and truths in this that are wonderful for us to think, and so I was telling the guys in the first hour, I had wished that this first session I had an hour and a half, just so I wouldn't leave you hanging, but I'm going to have to leave you hanging. Since I don't have the hour and a half, and these first five verses really just set up what Paul is going to unfold in the remaining chapters. This is so rich, and it begins in Romans chapter 9, 1 through 5, Paul says this, says, I am telling the truth in Christ, I am not lying, my conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom belongs the adoption as sons, and the glory, and the covenants, and the giving of the law, and the temple service, and the promises, whose are the fathers, and from whom in Christ, according to the flesh, who is over all, God blessed forever. Amen. This is a change in Paul's theme. As he begins to focus his attention now, on the implications of the gospel that he had been proclaiming. I believe this section begins back in chapter 8 and verse 31 when Paul asked the questions in 831, what then shall we say to these things if God is for us, who is against us? And as you remember through that series, we demonstrated the marvelous and rich love of God towards us, that he secures us and holds us, that nothing can come against us and separate us from the love of God. That neither height nor depth, nor angels nor principalities, nor things present nor things to come shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Verse 39. So Paul presents these marvelous truths of the riches of God's gospel. That God has rescued us and brought us to himself and he has redeemed us. That he preserves us and keeps us to the end. But it begs a significant question. And that significant question is then, well, what about Israel? Were they not the people of God? Did they not receive the covenants? Did they not receive the promises? Were they not the holy nation, a nation that was to be a royal priesthood for God? Were they not the privileged people of God? Did they not have the promises? Were they not the ones whom God would demonstrate his glory and live among them and dwell among them? Did he not call them out and separate them from the rest of the world so that he would receive glory through this people? What happened to them? Have they been rejected? Have they been cast out? Has God abandoned them? How, what should we say about Israel? If God preserves and protects and nothing can separate us from the love of God, did God forget to care for Israel? 
Did he abandon them? Did he in some way decide that he was done with them and now he can change his mind and he pursues another people? Has he replaced them in some way? That's the question that Paul now addresses from Romans chapter 9, 10, and 11. And he takes three chapters to address it. Which will be for the rest of the year for us. I mean, we've got the rest of 2023 will be this question for us. What is God's plan for Israel? This is the burden that would have been on the heart of Paul's audience. Let me just set this up for you so you see this. Turn back to chapter 1. This is remarkable about this whole letter to the Romans. Is that Paul has in this letter written to an audience of Jew and Gentile. And he's bringing the gospel message to both. And he's showing this gospel that is necessary for both groups. And what we're going to see as we begin to demonstrate the riches of this message is that God has a particular plan for his people, and he is addressing his people. And the book of Romans is addressing the Jew, calling the Jew to repentance and faith, just as he would call the Gentiles to repentance and faith. And as we see throughout this book, what we're going to recognize is this, and I'll just tell you the end so you don't guess where I'm at. God has a particular plan for the nation of Israel. His work has not stopped for them. He is continually working, and he has a future plan for them. And they will come. They will turn. Eventually, they will turn and see their Messiah and turn to their God, and God will redeem them. But right now... They're under reject they're under punishment. They're rejecting. They're in hostility to their God. And it didn't just start immediately. This has been going on for a while. And Paul is going to unfold this message for us. So that you will see as we work our way through this passage that we can take the plain meaning of the text and we can see plainly there is a plan for future for the physical nation of Israel. So that you will recognize and we will address the various ideas around this text. But you will recognize that when we take the text and we work through it plainly, there's an obvious and clear message. And by the way, this is, it won't come to any surprise to you as you have been in our ministry for any amount of time. We take the word of God, as my seminary professors would say to me in class, if the plain sense makes sense, then any other sense is nonsense. So my intent is to lead you through the plain sense of the scriptures and the plain sense presents a very obvious message. And the very obvious message is this, that God has not abandoned his covenant promises to his people. He has not abandoned them. He will accomplish his very good purposes in their midst. And that's what we'll see. And as I said, this has been coming out in Paul's letter to the Romans Here in chapter 1, it's interesting in chapter 1, as Paul is uh, writing, um, you come down into verse 16. Well, I want to go back earlier in the the opening greetings, in verses 1 through 5. 
As Paul says in verse 1 through 5, he talks about Paul, an apostle of Christ, Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son who was born of a descendant of David according to the flesh, who was declared the Son of God by power of the resurrection from the dead, according to the, Holy, uh, the Spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among, and then all the Gentiles, literally the phrase, among all the nations for his name's sake. What might be missed in this brief little introduction here is that he establishes the Messiah coming through David, anchoring his Jewish roots. The Messiah is going to be from the Jews, and he's going to be according to the line of David. But this message which comes is going to come beyond just for the people of Israel. Is now going to, verse 5, go to all the nations. That's literally the word there, but translated also Gentiles. Go to all the Gentiles for his name's sake. It started, the message for the Jewish people is a message that moved beyond to all the nations. This becomes more obvious in verse 16 of chapter 1 when Paul says this. I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, notice, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Paul, from verse 16 of chapter 1, all the way up through where we're at in chapter 9, then defends his gospel. He defends the need for the gospel because of the rebellion of man, both the rebellion of the Jew and the Gentile. All of humanity is rebelling against God. All of humanity is, has opposed God and rejected. All of man is, have sinned and violated the law of God and is in need of the gospel of God. And so Paul demonstrates the universal guiltiness of man, starting with, in verse 18 and following, the guiltiness of mankind uh, and this, the act of judgment of God as he turns the nations over to their sin. That's all of the rest of chapter 1. And as if you might think, well, then the Jew would think, well, we escaped. We're not uh, under the judgment. Well, then chapter 2 comes and Paul exposes their sinful heart and condition in chapter 2. Chapter 2, and uh, starting in verse uh, 12, so, or even back in verse 9, I guess, uh, it says, there will be tribulation and distress for every soul of man who does evil. Everyone who does evil, everyone who practices unrighteousness, there's going to be tribulation and distress. And then notice verse 9, of the Jew first and also of the Greek, no one escapes the universal judgment of God for sin. Verse 10, the glory and honor and peace to everyone who does good. Notice, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Paul's saying, the message that I come and preach is the message in which is for all of humanity, Jew and Gentile alike. And he goes on again in, in verse 12 and following and demonstrates the, the, uh, the Gentile who naturally does the law, having the law written on his heart, and then he goes and speaks to the Jew in verse 17 and following of Romans 2 and says this, 
But if you bear the name Jew and rely upon the law and boast in God and know his will and approve the things that are essential, being instructed out of the law, and are confident that you yourselves are a guide to the blind and a light to those who are in the darkness and a corrector of the foolish and a teacher of the immature, verse 20, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and of truth, you therefore who teach another, do you not teach yourself? You who preach that one shall not steal, do you steal? And you who say that one shall not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law through your breaking of the law, do you dishonor God? 4 verse 24, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you, just as it is written. It says you are guilty. You Jews who had the covenants, had the promises, and all these marvelous things, you are guilty as well. Then he goes on and describes in verses 25 and following that you're not one who is a Jew outwardly, but one who is a Jew inwardly, a circumcision that's not the circumcision of the flesh, but a circumcision of the heart. And he goes and demonstrates in this marvelous work the work of God of faith in the life of the believing Jew. See, this audience that Paul is writing to is an audience of Jew and Gentile. Not he's calling all people to repentance and faith in Christ, demonstrating the universal need from again one eighteen through chapter three and verse eighteen. He demonstrates the universal need, and then he turns and describes the gospel from three twenty one and following. He describes then the glory of justification by grace through faith alone. The one is justified before God by faith alone. And he goes and he anchors that message in the Old Testament. And he goes back and he proves it from Abraham's life. And he proves it from the writings of David. And he proves from the Old Testament that this faith in which we proclaim, this gospel that Paul is is proclaiming is a gospel anchored in the historical work of God. It's not a new message. This is the same message. And in chapters 5 and 6, they show the marvelous work of the gospel as he redeems people and sets them free. And then in chapter 7, he defends the gospel against the law, and he's not diminishing the law. He's not saying that the law is insignificant, which would have been the burden on the Jew's heart. Are you discrediting the law? Are you saying that this has no place? It's, no, it has. it's very important. It's very useful. It just cannot save. It can't deliver has no power to deliver, to set one free. Yes, it reveals the righteousness of God is holy, just, and good, but it is powerless to transform. So then we come to chapter 8, and the glorious riches of God's marvelous work that he has redeemed. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The riches of the gospel is those who believed upon Christ are set free from the penalty of sin. They're set free to walk in newness of life. They're set free to walk in the spirit of God, and they are safely secured in the hand of God as his children. Now that leads us to chapter 9 through 11. So what do we do then if the Jew rejects this message? What are we to say if God's people, his covenant people, rejects this gospel? Has God failed? Has his message failed? That, is the, that would be the question on the hearts and the minds of the Jewish audience sitting 
under Paul's letter here. We have believed the gospel. We believe that Jesus Christ is the Messiah. We believe that faith in him alone, our sins are covered, and that he has taken our transgressions, he has taken them to the cross, and they've been taken out of the way. And by faith in Christ, we are covered with the righteousness of Christ. We are now able to stand before God as heirs, heirs of the promise. We have believed these things, but a Jew sitting in the audience would say, but my countrymen have not. They have rejected. They are hostile to this message. And indeed, they were very hostile. You can read through the book of Second Corinthians, and you can see that Paul, when he would come into town and minister and leave, a group would come after him and try to undo what he did. They would try to teach a different message. They would seek to discredit Paul in some way. They would lift themselves up and call themselves true apostles and try to discredit Paul. These, as Paul called them, dogs, these evil workers, these who tried to force the audience, the Corinthians, to return back to their Jew Jewish roots and to come back under the law, Paul says, you're going against the gospel. So he warred against them. And now it is here in Romans chapter 9 that he's going to bring clarity to this very question that would have been on the heart and mind of his audience as they were hearing this message. If you're saying God is so secure in holding his people, then how come he has rejected this people here who are called by his name? This people who were supposed to receive his promises, what about them? And the answer is, and Paul's going to lay out here, I'm not done with them yet. I'm still working. That's God's answer to the one who would be sitting there seeing the working of God in the gospel, that God is still going to work amongst his people, and he is going to fulfill this plan that he has with his people to say this, that message isn't a very popular message. And just to kind of set up our text before we get to it, and again, this is where it's going to leave you unsatisfied because I'm going to, I've set up the problem of the tension. I can't answer it yet because there's so many details to work through. But I can tell you how some have tried to answer this question, this tension. I mean, when we come to Romans 9 through 11 here, the sovereignty of God starts coming out The emphasis of God's choosing some for glory and some for vessels of destruction come out, and those are are themes that are too grand for our hearts at times. And the temptation is to come to the text and try to either ignore it or change it. In fact, if you happen to have an Arminian leaning towards this text and you see the sovereignty of God, you just want to skip over chapters 9 through 11. And there are some actually who do that. I was even told about it this morning as one pastor who had finished preaching Romans 8 and verse 39 when it says, nor heights or depths nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. And then the very next week he picked up on Romans 12 and verse 1. Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God which is your spiritual service of worship. That's a very easy transition, and I would appreciate that transition, but you have these three chapters in between. In fact, it's not only do we not have any manuscripts with these three chapters missing in them, it's clear 
contextually that Paul is keenly aware of his audience and consistent in his message in addressing Jew and Gentile. And these chapters answer a very critical question that would have been an obvious implication to what he has just said in chapter 8, which calls God into question. If God says that he, and promised, that he is going to preserve and protect his people, has he abandoned this covenant group? Some would say, yes, he has. Some would say, by that, they would say it in this way. Well, because they rejected, and because they forsake the promises, and they didn't uphold their end of the bargain, God found another group that would. He replaced them. What would be known as replacement theology. That God has taken a new group, the church, the Israel of God, the spiritual Israel, and has replaced the physical Israel with the spiritual Israel. How would they argue that? If you turn back to chapter 2, I will show you this. Two places, one in chapter 2 and one in chapter 9. Here's how they would argue this particular view. They would say this, verse 28. For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is, he, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that which is of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. And his praise is not from men, but is from God. The argument is, see, God fulfilled his covenant not from the outward external practices, but by the inward practices. It's of the heart. And everyone who is changed of the heart is circumcised in their heart, and therefore they're a Jew inwardly, not outwardly. That's the argument. Turn over to chapter 9. You see this, another verse that will be turned to. Romans chapter 9 and verse 6. After Paul talking about his grief and his sorrow over Israel's rejection, he says this, verse 6, But it is not as though the word of God has failed. Why? Verse 4, or verse 6, For they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel. See, they say, they conclude, the church replaces Israel. Because it's not what happens on the outside, but what happens on the inside. And not everyone who called by Israel is actually Israel. There is a replacement. This view goes by different names. You may hear replacement theology. You may even hear the term fulfillment theology. So that they would say that what happened in Israel, that they were under the judgments of God. But what happens in the church, we're under the promises of God. Israel receives God's punishment, the physical nation receives God's punishment, but the Israel of God, the spiritual Israel, the church receives God's blessings, God's grace. One more term, if you want to just sound really smart with your friends, it's also known as supersessionism. So all of those are the same doctrine. The church is replacing Israel. Technically, supersessionism from a Latin term, super means on, over, over, above, and sedere, which means to sit upon. So it is to sit upon or above. 
So that the church then sits upon the physical nation of Israel and is then replacing Israel and carrying on all the covenant promises of Israel. So the idea then would be that the church comes along and takes on the role of Israel and finishes what Israel started. We will come and complete it. The question is this. Is that what is on Paul's mind? Did he intend to teach in these particular passages, like in verse 6 and earlier in chapter 2, that the church replaces Israel? Or is there something different? I think I'm going to demonstrate for you here that no, the church does not replace Israel. Paul is specifically concerned about the physical nation of Israel, and that will be very evident as we work through these passages and that he has a present working with Israel and pointing out their rebellion, and he has a future work for Israel to cause them to repentance and faith. And he will carry out his covenant promises with his people. The church age does not diminish that. And that will become very evident as we work through these chapters. So now I've shown you all my cards. You know where I'm going to go over these next weeks and months ahead. Let's just unfold what is happening here. And this is where we have to get, that's all introduction to the series. Now we get to look at this text. Thinking about that context, as Paul is writing here, if he's writing to an audience that is hostile, uh, an audience that has rejected the gospel, an audience that has rejected their Messiah, and is now under the active judgment of God, He responds to that in these verses here. He's under that weight, and that's what's articulated in these verses. And in verses 9 through 5, you see basically the introduction comments that then starts to unfold the dialogue. And in this introduction, he draws attention to two aspects. Now, to to be simple, he draws it to himself and to his audience, but we can call it the pastor and the people. He looks at the pastor, the minister, and he looks at the people whom he's ministering to. And I just want to focus on that first aspect, verse 1 and 2, the pastor. And I want to draw out Paul's particular burden as he's ministering this message. And what's significant about that is, about that is this. Paul is not coming and ministering this message on his own agenda. This has been a message he has been called to do. That's what he says back in chapter 1 and verse 1. He is an apostle called by God, called out to do this because of God's work in his life. So now he's ministering this message, and as he ministers this message, he's ministering it to an audience that is then rejecting it, hostile towards it. And what kind of a fact would happen in the heart of that minister when he's ministering? That's what's unfolded in these two verses. And two aspects which Paul brings out here because Paul reveals to us his heart and his character as he's ministering the truth. Notice again, verse 1 and 2. He says, I'm telling the truth. I'm not lying. My conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit. This is emphatic here as he's saying this, that I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. He defends the integrity of his ministry first, and then he defends the heart, his passion and love for the people he ministers to. So he defends his integrity and he defends his motive as he ministers. 
And this is, again, friends, super critical for us to understand because I know you and I are in similar situations. We've been called out by God to be his messengers, called out to minister his truth. And as we speak for God and as we share the gospel and as we minister truth to our loved ones and neighbors, etc., that message is offensive at times. I mean, just recently, as I was having the privilege of sharing the gospel to somebody, they said, wait a second. If what you're saying is true, I'm living in sin. I'm under God's judgment. I'm facing eternal condemnation. I don't know if I can accept that message. And there is a temptation in our hearts at that moment to say, do I have to change something? Do I have to back off in this message? Do I have to try to rescue this relationship? Am I the cause of their rebellion and their hostility? Am I pushing them away? What, what's happening there? All of that is wrestling through our hearts and mind, and I'm telling you, that's exactly what Paul is facing right here in verses 1 and 2. As he is ministering this message, he is running right into that very tension as he is seeing their rejection of the truth that he has been commissioned by God to deliver and he is seeing their difficulty, he is facing that difficulty. I can tell you, too many people think that they have done something wrong so they abandon the clarity of the gospel message to try to rescue a relationship and I'd say they have abandoned God at that point. They abandoned his message and they become more fearful of the response rather than trusting. And so we say, well, how do we galvanize our hearts in that moment? How do we respond in a way that would be righteous? Well, notice what Paul's response is. The first is look at the integrity of your ministry. And he gives three qualities to kind of test the integrity of his ministry in verse 1. He says, I am telling the truth in Christ. That's the positive element. I am not lying, negative element, and my conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit. Three aspects. The first, I am telling the truth in Christ, meaning I am speaking truth. I'm not speaking my own message. I'm not speaking my own agenda. I'm not coming in my own opinions. I'm not coming in my own preferences. I'm coming in the truth that is in Christ. I'm coming according to sound doctrine. I'm coming according to the wisdom that has been revealed from God. I'm coming in a message that is consistent, what has been given by Christ to his apostles, delivered to the Holy Church, which is the message in which we continue to proclaim. Nothing new, nothing different, nothing creative in my own genius, nothing in my own purposes. I don't have any secret agenda here. This is God's message. This is truth in Christ. That's the first test of one's integrity of ministry. Do you know you're delivering God's message and his message alone, or are you delivering your own? Is your own opinions just kind of couched in Christian language, or is it God's message, God's opinions, God's truth? The second aspect, the other side of it, the negative, that's the positive. He's then consistent with the truth. The second side, I am not lying, meaning I'm not hiding any false motive. I'm not kind of, I'm not obfuscating the truth. I'm not presenting some secret agenda here. I'm not coming misrepresenting my opinions, my views, or what I'm teaching you. I am not misleading you in any way. Just by 
you know, implication, of course, would be true. Because if we're delivering God's word, and God's word is inspired, and God's word is inerrant, and God's word is infallible, it cannot lead us into error, and it cannot lie to us. So if we're ministering the message of God that is according to his word, then there's no way that we can mistreat someone. So that, when that individual said to me, are you saying to me that if you're, what you're saying is correct, I'm under God's judgment, the answer is, yeah, that's exactly right. Because that is God's assessment. It's not my assessment. It's not anyone else's assessment. It's not our church's assessment. It is what God's assessment is. And by the way, you're in good company for all the world is under that assessment. As Paul has made clear in chapters 2 and 3 of Romans. And then the last element here, and I love this particular phrase, my conscience testifies with me. And he could have just stopped right there and just says, I have a clear conscience on that. But he adds this added phrase there that modifies it, in the Holy Spirit. A Holy Spirit-informed and cleansed conscience speaks. This is important. It's not just relying on conscience, because conscience can be corrupted. We can mislead our conscience. We can train our conscience to believe in error. We can misinform our conscience with other things. Our conscience is there as an early warning system to tell us that we're going against our values. And so when we are going against our values, the conscience speaks up and says you you are doing something wrong. A misinformed conscience can be speaking against, you know, against the things of God. A seared conscience, those who reject it. I've actually had people say to me, my conscience is clear as they are committing themselves to an adulterous relationship. Because... I love them, so my conscience is clear. Or my conscience is clear as they lie and they steal because they had good motives in doing these things. That's not the idea here, as if your conscience was infallible. This is here, he says, I have a conscience, my conscience testifying with me in the Holy Spirit. A conscience informed by the truth, cleansed by the truth, sanctified by the truth, that is operating according to the truth, is now affirming that my heart and integrity in my ministry is in line. That gives us confidence. When you go and you minister and you have to share with somebody who would be hostile to the message, you're just assessing, am I speaking the truth? Am I coming with pure motives? I'm not seeking to mistreat or take... Uh, I'm not lying to them, and I'm doing this under the influence and guide of the Spirit of God who's at work in my heart, sanctifying me and directing me, then there's integrity in the ministry. But there's, not, but there's more. Verse 2, and the second aspect of Paul's heart here, the shepherd, says that I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. There is a genuine love and care for those he's ministering to. A genuine, heartfelt love and care that is manifested in personal grief and sorrow over the rejection of his audience. His audience's rejection of the message. In fact, he says that emphatically there in those two phrases. Great sorrow and unceasing grief. Emotional distress, he's saying. I'm under this intense emotional burden and distress. And I'm not lying about it. And I'm not misleading you. 
I know the Spirit of God has led me into this because I have such a great care for you, such a love for you, for your best, for your good, that I want you to hold on to these things and I am broken that you won't receive it. Burdened by you. Burdened by your rejection. Burdened by your self-will and your self-seeking. Burdened by your open hostility to God. Burdened by your rebellion against the holiness and righteousness of God. And it weighs on me. But not enough to change the message. It weighs on me, but not enough to try to rescue the relationship at the expense of God's truth and God's glory. I, I can't do that. I wish I could do that, but I can't. I don't have that place. Burdens overwhelmed by the heaviness of the consequences of your rejection. I am overwhelmed by this. I have great sorrow over it, but I continue to embrace it. Why? Because I'm led by the Spirit and led by the truth, and I'm not speaking lies. I'm speaking the truth to you. I love about that is Paul's genuine love and compassion for those who are even hostile towards him. And what is his response is then I bear that burden upon myself. I carry this sorrow and this unceasing grief. I carry it. It's in my heart. It weighs upon me. You know, it's rather interesting here. Think about this. Here is a pastor who demonstrates his genuine love and care by bearing sorrows and grief continually. Who wants to sign up for that? But that's what everyone called into the work of Christ bears in some measure, in some way, whether full-time ministry vocation or whether just called as a servant of God, as a minister of the gospel, you carry this around with you. You know this. As you've ministered to loved ones who've rejected the truth, you know this, this sorrow, this personal grief. Why do so many run away from the sorrows when this is normal from, as a love for those who are rejecting the truth? This is normal that the sorrow would come, a sorrow and grief, because it's a grief that is informed by truth. It's a grief that is filled with faith because we know God's not a liar. We know God is not misleading. And we know that God's judgment is real. And we know the wickedness is evident. And we know what God has said in the gospel is true. And so we have to carry a load of sorrow and unceasing grief in our own hearts. And it should cause us to continue to endure it caused Paul here to continue to endure? That's the pastor. The next is the people. We don't really have time for that yet. So let me just kind of wrap up our thoughts on this. This is the Apostle Paul's heart ministering to the Jewish audience here. He is saying to his audience, I can't change this message. I can't change the gospel I can't change uh, what you're going to have to come face to face with is this. You're going to have to give an account for your rebellion. You're going to have to give an account for your rejection. You're going to have to turn from the error of your way and turn back to God and find mercy and grace in God for your rebellion if persistent is going to lead to then rejection. One way or another, you'll bring honor to God and it's either honor as he brings his judgment or its honor as 
He demonstrates the riches of his grace and mercy in your life in repentance and faith. And now is the time to turn. Oftentimes I think about this. um, How would you and I know that we genuinely love the audience we're ministering to? How would you know? And I can tell you right here, by your willingness to embrace the sorrows and difficulties in ministering the truth to them. Too many people are so concerned about themselves, you know, standing up in kind of glossed up ways, you know, I just don't want to be an offense, so I don't talk about sin. Now let's get to the honest root of it. You love yourself more than you love the audience. You know, I, I don't want to speak that truth. We're not a place of truth because, uh, you know, people can't handle that. Well, they need to handle that because that's what the message of God is. That's what he has given to us. It is by the truth our lives are sanctified and by the truth that we grow and by the truth that we're made right with God and by the truth that we operate in integrity and by the truth that we know that we're right and not misled. But the truth brings sorrow and it brings grief. Yeah, that's the price of love. That is the price of caring. That is the price we must pay because of the great love that God has lavished us with and because of the entrustment that we have to minister his truth. That is what we're entrusted with. Okay, then we can embrace that. To which then, what do we have to say? Well, what we have to say then is the message of God's truth, which he is then, Paul is then going to unfold to his people. And next week, the next time we come back together, we'll look at that. My encouragement to you is this. Embrace a ministry of integrity. Walk by his truth. Speak truth. Yield to his spirit in everything. And embrace a ministry of love, having a motive of care and concern for others, even if you have to bear the sorrows and difficulties. You'll be in good company. And next week, we'll look at the people. Let's go before the Lord in prayer. Father, Say thank you so much for the riches of these truths and just the marvelous passion and love of a faithful man of God ministering the gospel of your son to an audience who would be hostile. Just thankful for Paul's example and we're just thankful for your message. For your message may lead us into difficult circumstances or situations, may lead us into challenging circumstances, certainly may cause sorrow, suffering, and difficulty. But we know that you have a good purpose, for even in the moments of sorrows, there is the wiping away of tears, and there is the restoration, and there's joy that comes, and there's a newness of day that arises. We are anticipating the time of glory that will come and we will forget these momentary light afflictions as we understand the riches of your grace for all of eternity. And so we pray, Father, as we meditate on the riches of your word, may we not run from the message but run to it. May we not try to change your message in our own wisdom but try to come under it and better understand it. And when we seek to wrestle with your truth, give us the plain sense, the clear sense, that as we communicate that message, indeed what will be on display is your power and wisdom. So shape us and continue to use this truth to transform your people and draw many to yourself. And we ultimately pray, Father, 
that, that your people Israel would repent and turn to you so that your covenant love would be richly on display. It's in Christ's name we pray, amen.